Thanks to all of you at home for joining us this hour. Tomorrow, President Trump is holding what he is billing as the first official rally of his 2024 presidential campaign. Now, Trump could have picked anywhere in the country for this event. He might have focused on Iowa, where the first Republican presidential caucus is going to be held. He could have stayed close to home in Florida and ribbed Ron DeSantis just a little bit more. But instead, Trump chose Texas, a state that really doesn't appear to have much strategic significance for his comeback bid. And he didn't choose Houston or Dallas or Austin or any of the highly populated cities that Texas has to offer. Trump chose the 24th largest city in Texas, skipping 23 more logical choices to land on Waco, a city of just 140,000 people that is famous nationally for just one thing, a 1993 51-day standoff between federal law enforcement and a religious cult that left four federal agents dead and around 80 members of the cult, 25 of them children, dead as well. It was quite literally the biggest gunfight on American soil since the Civil War. And because the inciting incident for that siege was federal law enforcement attempting to raid the cult's compound because they were illegally stockpiling guns, Waco is something of a touchstone for the American far right. Waco is a symbol. So the fact that Trump is going there is a big deal. As the Houston Chronicle put it, in an editorial yesterday, Trump is stoking the fires of Waco. Quote, Waco has become an Alamo of sorts, a shrine for the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, and other anti-government extremists and conspiracists. In 2000, the now very pro-Trump far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones put out a full-length documentary called America, Wake Up or Waco? Jones was so obsessed with Waco that he actually convinced the remaining members of the religious cult to rebuild their church, the one that was destroyed in the siege. Jones used his radio show to raise tens of thousands of dollars towards that effort. In 2015, Trump's longtime political advisor, Roger Stone, published a book called The Clinton's War on Women. Stone dedicated that book to the members of the religious cult who died in the Waco siege and specifically blamed Hillary Clinton for their deaths. And now the church that Alex Jones helped pay to rebuild, that church is now led by this man. He is a pastor who, like Waco's leader David Koresh in the 90s, he preaches about the coming apocalypse. But his sermons have a new star. He believes, quote, Donald Trump is the anointed of God and that Trump is the battering ram that God is using to bring down the deep state of Babylon. That pastor told the New York Times that he is for sure going to Trump's rally tomorrow. So Donald Trump is choosing to kick off his presidential campaign in a place that happens to be the center of a lot of very violent symbolism, a place with a bloody history of citizen-led uprising against the federal government. And there is more. This is Timothy McVeigh. At 24 years old, McVeigh visited Waco in 1993. He went while the siege was underway as a show of support for the armed cult and to sell anti-government pro-gun T-shirts and bumper stickers. You likely know McVeigh as one of the Oklahoma City bombers. In 1995, McVeigh and his partner Terry Nichols, they committed the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history, blowing up a federal building in Oklahoma City. It killed 168 people and it wounded hundreds of others. Before he was executed, McVeigh described his motive by saying, quote, Waco started this war. He hoped Oklahoma would end it. 
Okay. And now, in the year 2023, with all of that history, Trump is choosing Waco as the site of his first campaign rally. The anti-government message here is not subtle. The violent history is not secret. But Trump has an extensive history of both downplaying and tacitly encouraging acts of violence. In his 2016 campaign, Trump routinely urged his supporters to attack protesters in the crowd. Knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. After violence broke out at a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the first year of his presidency, Trump said this. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. In a presidential debate in 2020, Trump was asked if he was willing to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and specifically whether he would call for the Proud Boys to stand down. Instead, Trump said this. Proud Proud Boys. Stand back and stand by. After the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago last summer, Trump used inflammatory rhetoric to demonize that agency. Three days later, one of his supporters attacked the FBI's Cincinnati field office with a nail gun and an AR-15-style rifle. And then, of course, there was January 6th, where Trump's rhetoric and his promotion of the big lie led his supporters to violently overtake our nation's capital. Rather than condemn that attack, Trump and his allies in Congress have martyred the attackers. Today, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene led a congressional tour to visit January 6th defendants in jail. Trump himself has promised to pardon anyone who committed crimes that day if he is reelected. And tomorrow, Trump is scheduled to hold his first official 2024 campaign rally in Waco, exactly at the same moment as Trump and the rest of the country await his likely imminent criminal indictment. This is a perilous time for Donald Trump. He is desperate to regain the presidency, but he could be arrested any day now. So he is encouraging his followers to become martyrs and defend him. All week, Trump has been attacking the prosecutors in all of the various cases against him. But in particular, he has been focused on Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor who seems likely to indict him first. Trump has called the black prosecutor a Soros-backed animal and compared his office to the Gestapo. He has mocked the idea that his supporters should respond peacefully to an indictment from this DA. And last night, Trump went so far as to say that if he is indicted, then, quote, potential death and destruction would soon follow. Tonight, a senior New York law enforcement official told NBC News that there have been several hundred threats to Alvin Bragg's office in recent weeks. A couple dozen threatens serious harm to Bragg himself. And today, Bragg's office received a letter filled with white powder that read, Alvin, I am going to kill you. Joining us now is Chesa Boudin, former San Francisco district attorney. Chesa, it's good to see you. I'm sorry. It's under these auspices. Uh, I just want to know, you know, as someone who understands what it is to be a DA from one DA to another, what do you make of the direct targeting of a DA by the former president of the United States who has a history of inciting violence? Thanks for having me, Alex. And what a way to wind down the week. Definitely. Yes. Not wind down, I guess. Yeah, not cherry news. Um, and it's it, look, it's really problematic. It's irresponsible. It's dangerous. It may well be criminal. I want to emphasize three different points and hopefully we'll have time to talk about all of them. Um, my wife we'll likes to say I get paid by the word, but obviously I'm not getting paid. The um, 
Look, the first thing that's important is that these attacks, personal and procedural, on folks like D.A. Alvin Bragg, Mm -hmm. are precisely because Trump and his Republican apologists are trying to distract all of us, the American people, from the facts. Nobody is defending the conduct that underlies these investigations. Nobody's denying it. So they're trying to do a bait and switch with the procedural and personal attacks. Mm -hmm. Second thing that's really important, to pull that off, they're blatantly misrepresenting, as they so often do, the basic realities of how grand juries work, of how indictment procedures work. I've personally presented evidence to grand juries. I want to talk about that. And third, and in some ways most importantly, is they are advocating a a consequences for thee, but not for me approach, Mm -hmm. which is so ironic, coming from the legislators and, 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 and pundits who attack reform prosecutors for using their discretion not to go after people who are committing crimes of poverty, jumping turnstiles because they don't have the $2.75 fare, mm-hmm. and now attacking Alvin Bragg for prosecuting cases. They right. want to have it both ways. Yeah, th- that's a very, very good point. And I want to return to all of them. But specifically, I mean, and you talk about this, the prosecutor's role in convening a grand jury and what is happening behind the scenes. Number one, I mean, Alvin Bragg has had to send out multiple notes to his staff and his office this week to basically assuage their concerns about what I assume is their own personal safety. Today, he sent out a letter. I know it hasn't been easy, he wrote in his email, with all of the press attention and security around our office and thanked everyone for their strength and professionalism during this time. People think that it's not just Alvin Bragg who's doing this work, right? There is a team of people. Can you, for people who don't understand what's happening in a DA's office, I mean, what kind of peril are people putting themselves in? Who's working on these cases? How many civil servants are we talking about? And is there the kind of protection? I mean, are there safety protocols in place for something like this? It seems so unprecedented. Absolutely right, Alex. Look, the, the level of attention that Donald Trump is bringing to this one office and the level of vitriol and hatred and threats is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. It's never happened. Um, I mean, grand jury procedures were invented by our founding fathers, as they say, to protect individual rights against the overreach of the state. And what people are getting so wrong is this idea that it's somehow Alvin Bragg individually and personally who's making all the decisions. The grand jury itself decides if they want to hear from another witness, if they want to see another piece of evidence. And then there's an entire office, as you point out, Prosecutors, yes, attorneys, but also investigators and paralegals and support staff, IT personnel who are making sure that the grand jury, which is itself in charge of this investigation, not Alvin Bragg constitutionally, it is its own body. If it, I I indicted a murder case when I was the DA of San Francisco. I thought I knew all the evidence the grand jury would want to see. I had the witnesses under subpoena, the pieces of evidence lined up. And then the grand jury said, we want to see more. Another piece of evidence, more, different. And, and that's part of why the timing here, the idea that Trump would know he was going to be indicted on a particular day is preposterous. Or, it, I mean, and maybe even, I guess I, that leads, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that an indictment is imminent? I do not, no. I mean, look, we, we don't, we cannot know. The only people who know are, are the, the grand, grand jury members themselves. And they may not have yet taken a vote, but it doesn't matter to Trump. 
I got to ask, though, I mean, if you're a grand jury member and you see the amount of violence in the air, if not actually executed, does this have a chilling effect on the grand jury? I mean, I would assume if you're a lay person that has been called to be on this grand jury, this kind of rhetoric is terrifying. It's terrifying for the prosecutors. I mean, what kind of real world effect does that have on the case itself, do you think, if any? I think it has a very uh, potentially real effect on the case. And it's one of the reasons why we're seeing Trump and his allies get out ahead of potential indictments to try to influence the grand jury to try to influence potential uh, petite jurors who might hear the evidence in a guilt phase of the case down the road. Um, And also, obviously, for Trump's purposes, to fundraise and to rally his base ahead of a presidential campaign. We know, I mean, there was a broad expectation, partially because of the timing of Trump being invited to testify before the grand jury and his announcement that he was going to be arrested this week, that this was all going to come to a head this week. It didn't. It has been delayed. There has been a lot of um, armchair analysis about why that may be. You are a DA. I mean, as we look at the inaction this week and look towards next week, do you think, again, I know you're not in that room, but how do you look at the, the sort of, if you will, slowdown of this week and what that could suggest? I think there's a lot of possible explanations. One is the security concerns you mentioned earlier, not only for members of DA Bragg's office and team, but also for the grand jurors themselves. Second thing is the grand jury may have wanted to see more evidence, hear from additional witnesses. Um, They may be deliberating uh, ahead of a vote. There may be multiple different potential charges that they're considering. Um, Other things mundane bureaucratic things could be slowing it down. Maybe they've taken a vote and they're waiting for a judge to come and formally accept a signed indictment or to file that indictment Mm -hmm. with the court. I mean, again, this is an independent body, separate and apart from the DA's office. This is not Alvin Bragg unilaterally making a decision. But again, these Republicans and their and their apologists don't care about procedures or constitutional rights. And the same folks who attack Prosecutors like myself, like Alvin Bragg, like so many across the country. Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis in Atlanta, who are calling for reforms, who are calling for a system of justice that works for everybody, not just for the rich and powerful and well-connected. All of a sudden, they're outraged that people are enforcing the laws. Go figure. These people who cloak themselves in tough on crime rhetoric, who claim to want more resources for police and prosecutors. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, when they're the ones being investigated, it's defund the FBI, defund the Department of Justice. Who would have thought that was the Republican talking point? They would be much more honest and transparent if they simply said that they believed in two systems of justice. If they believe that people like Donald Trump and police officers who shoot and kill unarmed black men and the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are above the law. If they just said that, that's clearly their position. But they're using smoke, mirrors, personal attacks, procedural attacks to distract all of us from the hypocrisy, the irony, and the fact that they've committed very serious crimes. Well, right. And they may, in fact, it, some of this may not just be rhetoric and policy, but may be actual violence. I mean, that we cannot forget that when Trump gives blows the whistle Some people hear it. And that's what I think is terrifying about what's on the horizon here. Let's not forget a Capitol police officer was killed during the January 6th insurrection. Let's not forget that today Alvin Bragg received a death threat. An elected official received a death threat. Why? Because of Donald Trump's rhetoric and his apologists' rhetoric in the Republican Party. It's unacceptable. It's dangerous. And it may well be criminal. Chase Boudin. 
It's great to see you. Thank you for your time. I'm sorry. It's such a depressing, distressing series of topics we have to talk about. I really appreciate your wisdom. Good to be with you, Alex. We have a lot to get to this evening, like a TikTok influencer's new campaign to use Trump's favorite social media platform against him, which seems to be working. Plus, another loss for Team Trump and another win for the Justice Department special counsel that is investigating Trump's role in January 6th. We'll get to that coming up next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Today, we learned that a laundry list of the the principal players in the Trump universe have either been hauled in or are about to be hauled in by the special counsel and will head to a grand jury room to deliver testimony against Trump's wishes. We know that special counsel Jack Smith is in a court battle in an effort to compel former Vice President Mike Pence's testimony about January 6th. Trump's attorneys, in fact, were in court yesterday trying to block that testimony. Trump has already lost the fight to stop his attorney in the Mar-a-Lago documents case from a hearing before the grand jury. Today, Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran testified for roughly three and a half hours before the grand jury in that probe. Courts have further ruled that special counsel prosecutors can review Corcoran's documents and his records concerning Trump. This comes after the special counsel's team convinced a judge that there is evidence Trump misled his lawyers regarding the existence of classified documents stored at Mar-a-Lago. Now, Corcoran is just the latest witness to be forced to provide testimony, the latest person from Trump's inner circle that Trump has not been able to stop from testifying. And today we learned that a federal judge in D.C. has ordered a who's who of Trump's inner circle to provide testimony in the special counsel's January 6th investigation. That list includes former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, his director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe, his former national security advisor Robert O'Brien, his former close advisor Stephen Miller, his former deputy chief of staff Dan Scavino, his former top Department of Homeland Security official Ken Cuccinelli, and his former White House aides Nick Luna and John McEntee. Trump tried to stop that crew from appearing before the January 6th grand jury. His attempts thus far to derail the investigation, however, have failed. And the legal battles are far from over. Jack Smith also has subpoenas out to Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Joining us now to discuss all this is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter for The Washington Post, and Sean Wu, former federal prosecutor. Devlin, Sean, thank you both for being here. Um, Sean, just from the prosecutor's perspective, I wonder how you interpret this string of victories for Jack Smith and what it portends for future subpoenas like those of Ivanka, uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. 
Well, I think, uh, Alex, this goes to the heart of why the executive privilege defense or barrier is just not going to work here. I mean, dating back to United States versus Nixon, um, the Supreme Court had made it clear that the executive privilege, which does exist, um, won't shield the communications in the face of a criminal grand jury investigation, which is what we have going on right here. So these folks all indicate that Smith is zeroing in on people who are in a position to know about Trump's state of mind, the intent, which is really going to be the core of the controversy over whether he really believed that there was a problem with the election or what was he doing in terms of trying to overturn the election results. These are the kind of the people you need to have in there to make that case for or against. Uh, my only frustration is I wish it happened a lot earlier. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure uh, some people wish the same. Um, Devlin, in terms of Evan Corcoran's testimony today, three and a half hours, we have little reporting from what went on behind closed doors. Uh, but I wonder what you think a grand jury might want to focus on in terms of Evan Corcoran as it pertains to the Mar-a-Lago case. Well, remember the role Evan Corcoran plays in how this all, uh, how this case develops. Evan Corcoran is the lawyer who conducts the search, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, after Trump's team receives a subpoena demanding the return of all classified documents. That is a huge point of contention between the prosecutors and Trump's legal team, because remember, it, it is ultimately the, the government the government investigators come to believe that that was not a good faith and full effort to recover all the classified material. And that's what leads to the search later on. Evan Corcoran is the lawyer who does that search. Evan Corcoran is the lawyer who is primarily responsible for dealing with the government when the government is trying to recover these classified documents. One thing to consider, though, when you took, I think a lot of people think, oh, these people close to Trump are going to testify. They're going to give evidence against the, the former president. That's not necessarily the case. I think a lot of smart prosecutors put witnesses like Evan Corcoran or other people close to the, the main target of the investigation into the grand jury to see what the defense is. Hmm. Do the people we are investigating have a strong defense against this accusation? I think a lot of smart prosecutors put those kind of witnesses in because it gives them sort of a first crack at whatever the defense might be. And that may be part of the dynamic and the legal jockeying that's going on here. Um, I want to follow up on that, Devlin, because you reported out that uh, prosecutors, sorry, the grand jury is going to have access to Evan Corcoran's notes and documents. And I wonder if you could flesh that out a little bit more in terms of, you know, their particular relevance to the Mar-a-Lago case. Right. So we don't know what yet what the notes say, but we know what Evan Corcoran's role was in this. And that's important because he was the one who did the search. So what did the notes say about where he was told to search? Was were there any place that he was told not to search? Was Evan Corcoran told anything by his client, Donald Trump, that turned out not to be true? Remember, one of the other things that we and others have reported is that to get to this stage of getting Evan Corcoran's testimony, the judge had a essentially first look finding that there is some evidence here that Trump may have misled his own lawyers. So for all those reasons, you want to see what's in Evan Corcoran's notes, what in not just notes, but invoices, any emails between people. These are all important pieces of evidence that in many ways 
in many instances, only Evan Corcoran can provide. Yeah. I, and when you talk about key figures, Evan Corcoran is definitely the guy from Mar-a-Lago. But, Chan, we know in the parallel January 6th probe, Mark Meadows, the president's White House chief of staff, some of whose texts we've been treated to as part of the January 6th committee investigation, was a key player in all of the events in and around the attempt to uh, undermine the results of the 2020 election. I mean, Mark Meadows is the point person between Congress and Trump that day. He's the person that's on the call to Brad Raffensperger trying to get 11,000 votes in the state of Georgia so that Trump can win it. He He's funneling the bogus election fraud claims from Congress to the White House. You know, he, he is a central player in all of this. And I wonder where you think Trump is most vulnerable um, in the January 6th probe when it comes to Mark Meadows' testimony. Uh, I think for Mark Meadows, uh, like Corcoran, although not a lawyer, uh, he is the guy in the room. He's going to be extremely privy to what Trump's real thoughts were. And I think, importantly, even aside from the state of mind, um, it's his corroborating testimony to what Trump did or didn't do that day, what he really wanted to have happen, either through action or inaction. And that is circumstantial evidence just from the actions. He doesn't have to speculate as to what the former president was thinking. He can testify about what he did, what he was told, and what he didn't do after he was told about what was happening that day. Devlin, do you see uh, Meadows as another test of the defense's arguments, or do you think that that's just straight up, we want the information that Mark Meadows has? Well, I think it's I think it's most likely both. I think the challenge with Mark Meadows is that he is not always a reliable narrator. Mm. And we know that he has in the past been very defensive of Donald Trump, in, including in the course of legal investigations. So I, I'm not I, I don't know ultimately what Mark Meadows will decide to tell the grand jurors. I will say that the the large pattern of behavior from Mark Meadows is that I don't think he's going to necessarily be a willing or particularly helpful witness against the former president. But he may still be an important witness, even if he's not a cooperative witness, if that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. Um, Shan, I, I have to ask, you know, I, I don't at the risk of being overly optimistic that uh, the, the the phase of prognostication about the special counsel probe may be coming to a close. Do you see any indicators here, given the fact that we're talking about Meadows and Pence and Trump's lawyer in Mar-a-Lago? These people are all being rounded up and, you know, they're they're going to testify in front of the, these grand juries. Does that suggest to you that we are toward the we are in the end stages of Jack Smith's investigations here. Uh, I'd like to say yes, but I, I don't think so. Uh, these are really important people who any good prosecutor would want to have in there now. It really depends a lot on what he gets from them. Um, he jumped on these sorts of witnesses early, anticipating a lot of litigation just to get them in there. And that's exactly what's happened. So if I had to say where he was, I'd say middle, maybe moving towards the end. But it's really these key witnesses they need to hear from in order to formulate what kind of evidence there is for potential charges. So sorry De to disappoint. <laughs> Devlin, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, I don't know if it's a disappointment or not, but I, I, Devlin, when you think about 
the the time frame here and and what is unfolding in the Manhattan DA's case and and his potential indictment of the president do you think that has any effect the politics that have been so prime primally injected into this fight by the former president do you think that has any effect on the time frame that that Jack Smith is thinking of I know the DOJ operates above politics but the 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 landscape is so fraught already before even one criminal indictment has been has been launched you know I think it's I think it's a great question and it's a great concern because obviously all of these cases are happening under a very intense public glare. But I really think at the end of the day, these prosecutors have to do their own jobs on their own, even if that risks some degree of, you know, timing problems or or just confusion in the general public as to what the heck is going on right now. I just think at the end of the day, it's too messy for these prosecutorial arms to be coordinating or communicating in, in, in a significant, you know, intense or d- specific way. And so I don't think you're going to see much coordination. And if that creates a degree of public or political confusion, I, I suspect that that's something that the prosecutors believe they have, they're going to, just going to have to live with. We're all going to have to live with it. Devlin Barrett and Shan Wu, thank you both for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. We have still more to come tonight. A TikTok influencer plays a prank on former President Trump on his own virtual turf. Plus, state Supreme Court justices in Oklahoma say the quiet part out loud, openly questioning how to weigh the value of a pregnant woman's life against the value of the fetus she is carrying. Stay with us. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. There are more than 150 million Americans who love our platform, and we know we have a responsibility to protect them. TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. That was the CEO of the social media platform TikTok testifying before Congress yesterday amid calls from lawmakers in both parties to ban the app in the United States. Those lawmakers argued that the Chinese-owned company poses a threat to national security by potentially allowing the Chinese government to collect data from millions of Americans. Lawmakers who oppose the ban argue that those security concerns are rooted in xenophobia. Now, whatever you think about TikTok— One thing is certain, more than a third of Americans, a third of the country, already use the app. And its users have an enormous amount of political power at their fingertips. Remember back in 2020 when Donald Trump decided to hold a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was the site of a historic massacre of black Americans? 
and he decided to hold that rally during the weekend of the Juneteenth holiday. Trump's campaign boasted that more than one million people had requested tickets to the rally. But on the day of the event, turnout was a whole lot lower than that. A massive wave of TikTok users, led by a group of K-pop fans, took credit and they celebrated their Trump trolling, signing up to attend his rally with no intention of actually showing up. Somebody on another TikTok post commented that he was offering two free tickets on his campaign website to go to this rally. So I went and investigated it. It's two free tickets per cell phone number. I recommend that all of those of us that want to see this 19,000 seat auditorium barely filled or completely empty, go reserve tickets now and leave him standing there alone on the stage. What do you say? Now Trump is running for president again and TikTok users are back at it. This is TikTok influencer Peter McIndoe. He is most famous for helping to popularize the online joke conspiracy, Birds Aren't Real. Here he is explaining that movement in a local news interview. The message of the movement is essentially to spread awareness that from 1959 through 2001, the government mercilessly genocided over 12 billion birds and simultaneously replaced them with surveillance drones in disguise that film us every day as equally as these cameras are filming us right now. For the record, birds are very much real. Now, McIndoe has set his sights on a new target, Trump and his right-wing social media platform, Truth Social. Okay, we can take over Trump's app, Truth Social, right now. Here's how. Okay, so the top trending topics only have like 100 people talking about them. So this means if only 100 of us make accounts and post with a new hashtag, it will literally be trending and Trump will see it. So in my opinion, the hashtag we should use is DeSantis2024. Ron DeSantis, for those who don't know, is his biggest enemy and his main challenger for 2024. Truth Social is Trump's app, and if he thinks that his own base is turning against him on the day of his arrest and switching teams, I think he would actually lose his mind. McIndoe posted that video on Tuesday. According to NBC News, by that afternoon, the hashtag DeSantis2024 had shot its way up to the top spot, having accrued more than 1,500 mentions overnight. As signups flooded Truth Social this week, some online claimed they could no longer join because the app had paused the acceptance process for new accounts. Others speculated the sudden influx of signups could have crashed Truth Social's servers. There's no word from Trump on all of this as yet, but this latest campaign should serve as a warning to lawmakers looking to change any social media regulations. Mess with TikTok influencers at your own risk. When we come back, a state Supreme Court hands a small defeat to anti-abortion forces, but inside that defeat are clues to what may be the next chilling attack on reproductive freedom. That's next. Last year, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed a law banning nearly all abortions, with exception for rape and incest, and in certain cases, the life of the mother. But that last part, saving the life of the mother, is murky for doctors who can be sued by anyone in Oklahoma just for treating their patients. Shortly after the law was signed, a woman found out she was carrying an ectopic pregnancy. Her fertilized egg had implanted outside of her uterus, which is a life-threatening condition. When the obstetrician refused to treat her, the pregnant patient called the medical director at an abortion clinic in Oklahoma City. They sent her to the facility in Kansas, where the abortion is legal. By that time, though, her condition had deteriorated so much that a hospital had to terminate her pregnancy. 
This is what can happen under abortion bans like Oklahoma's. A pregnant person with no chance of saving the pregnancy has to fight for their right to live, to not die with a non-viable fetus. And that's why reproductive rights advocates filed a lawsuit last summer to challenge Oklahoma's multiple abortion bans, including a now active zombie law from the year 1910, one that makes performing any abortion a felony punishable by prison time unless the same is necessary to preserve her life. This week, the Oklahoma Supreme Court weighed in. In a narrow 5-4 to four ruling, the court said yes, the state constitution creates an inherent right to an abortion when the pregnant women's lives are threatened. The majority wrote, a woman has an inherent right to choose to terminate her pregnancy if at any point in the pregnancy the woman's physician has determined to a reasonable degree of medical certainty or probability that the continuation of the pregnancy will endanger the woman's life due to the pregnancy itself or due to a medical condition. Okay, to support their ruling, the majority cited the section of the state constitution that says all persons have the inherent right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So on its face, this seems like a small victory for people who support abortion rights. But as always, the devil is in the details. One of the dissenting justices wrote that balancing the life of the fetus and the mother is a necessary and worthy dialogue for the people to commence. Another added, under some rare and terrible circumstances, people's rights to life may conflict. How do we balance that? The justices' dissents beg the question, if the state legislature does not specifically state that the right to life applies to women whose pregnancies might kill them, then must they simply forego treatment and die? As three justices wrote in a concurring opinion, in some instances, Women may have fewer rights than a convicted murderer on death row. These women may be subject to a death sentence without being afforded due process. Imagine that. Joining us now is Caroline Kitchener, the Washington Post reporter who has been covering the politics of abortion. Caroline, thank you for being here tonight. I, I would love to first get your assessment of the legal argument that's being made here on the part of the dissenting judges, because it, it feels like a new frontier, really arguing that the life of the pregnant woman and the fetus she's carrying are equal, and it's unclear whose life should be saved in an extreme circumstance. I think the important thing to hear to take away, Alex, is that this ruling is not going to make doctors comfortable doing what they need to do to protect the health of the women that they're serving. Um, I talked to doctors I, I just a few days ago, talked to a doctor in a banned state who was just terrified uh, because, you know, they, they are seeing women come in with pregnancy complications and they are having to, in that split second, make the assessment is this dangerous enough? Is this life-threatening enough? And I think that, you know, reading especially these dissents and, you know, and, 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 and a lot of, of what is in this ruling is going to be really concerning for doctors. I mean, one thing that really stood out to me is that they're very particular with their language. Um, you know, this, this does not cover situations where there is a possibility that the mother's life could be at risk or speculation, they say, is not enough. It has to be a reasonable chance. So I, I think that when you are in there in that hospital room, that's a really hard call to make as a doctor. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because what we're talking about is the threshold at which what's being litigated is the threshold at which a woman is 
going, how, how in danger her life actually is. And it's not just the possibility that, that you know, that going septic will kill her. It's that she actually has to be septic in order to get that abortion. And the line there seems to be incredibly confused. So, I mean, how, how doctors are, it, it sounds like, are reacting by just not wanting to do it at all, right? Is that sort of in your reporting? And I would, I would ask this more nationally. I mean, are, is the climate of fear pronounced enough that doctors are just saying, I'm not getting involved in this at all? I think it varies. You know, I've also spoken to doctors in banned states who say, I committed a felony today. And they say that proudly uh, because they believe with every fiber of their being that they are doing the right thing, even if they're violating the law. And they, you know, their kind of stance that they take is, okay, you know, try, you know, I, I, I am not going to go back on my medical oath for this reason. And, you know, what I, I don't think that that's you know, doctors have families, right? They are um, they are people with a lot to lose, and I think that that's probably um, you know less common. The people who are out there saying proudly that they are committing felonies, I think a lot of doctors are extremely scared. They're scared for their licenses. They are scared for their livelihoods, and you know, I, I think that this is going to be a really big thing to watch going forward. How courts deal with this and also how state legislatures do. Yeah. And I know we are all awaiting a big uh, ruling in Texas on uh, whether or not the FDA can continue or women can continue to access uh, the, the drug mifepristone as part of a two drug protocol for medication abortions. And I don't you know, I, I have long been worried that that a victory in getting mifepristone off the market could mean very serious trouble for the other abortion pill, which is misoprostol. Now, we have news out of Wyoming that there is a bill that basically broadly outlaws using any medication for abortion. It doesn't mention specific drugs, but I wonder whether you think this is the for opening salvo in just outlawing all forms of medication abortion. I think it's really hard to say. Um, that did come up during the hearing last week. Um, I was in the courtroom in Amarillo, and toward the end, um, there was some conversation. You know, the 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 judge, you know, was was asking, you know, is this, you know, what about the other drug? And you know, the plaintiffs did say, you know, that is not the purpose of this lawsuit. So, um, you know, I do think that it could come into play with this lawsuit because one of the things at issue here is mailing abortion pills, and that's abortion pills generally. That's not just mifepristone. So you could see it become a lot harder to access either one of these. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's too early to say whether, you know, the, the, the approval of um, misoprostol is also going to come into question. It's a little bit harder because it does, you know, it's, it's used for a lot of different things, not just abortion. So I think that the anti-abortion movement maybe sees that as a little bit more challenging. Well, I think any moment where we're actively debating in court whether the value of a woman's life is superseded by that of her fetus means everything's on the table in terms of restricting reproductive freedoms. Caroline Kitchener, thank you so much for your great reporting. Appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for having me. We have one more story for you tonight. What is a college professor to do when a student finds learning about civil rights uncomfortable? In Ron DeSantis' Florida, the answer is cancel class. That's next. In 1963, in the midst of the civil rights movement, two small schools in Brevard County, Florida, merged to form what is now known as Eastern Florida State College. 
The goal of the new college was to offer affordable tuition and to provide educational opportunities to the black residents in the area. Sixty years later, it is now Governor Ron DeSantis's Florida, and Eastern Florida State College is making headlines for this. Canceling a U.S. government class after a student cited discomfort during a discussion on civil rights. One student. Singular. Now, we don't know who the student was or the exact context of the discussion, but what happened was the class was canceled under the umbrella of Governor DeSantis's Stop Woke Act, which specifically bans the teaching of any lesson, especially those about race and racism, if the lesson makes any student feel discomfort. And here's what that looks like in real life. The topic was uh, civil rights. No, no specific bit of it, just in general, as far as I'm aware. And so the teacher basically had to cancel this class of 20, about 20 students in total uh, because of the students' discomfort. Due to ongoing legal challenges, the Stop Woke Act has not been implemented at Florida colleges and universities yet. But confusion and concern are already widespread as teachers from elementary to high school to college reevaluate the way they teach and apparently what they teach. In the meantime, a college established during the civil rights era has to figure out whether it can even teach students about the civil rights era. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you next week. Now it's time for the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Good evening, Lawrence. Good evening, Alex. And we have a statement from New York City Mayor Eric Adams on the death threat uh, that uh, District Attorney Bragg, Manhattan District Attorney Bragg, received today. Uh, The mayor says, while we cannot comment on the specifics of any ongoing investigation, no public official should ever be subject to threats for doing his or her job. I'm confident that every elected official in the city, including Manhattan DA Bragg, will continue to do their work undeterred and anyone found to be engaging in illegal conduct will be brought to justice. And so that's uh, the mayor of New York's latest statement about uh, this threat to the district attorney today. It's it's an important letter and it couldn't come at a a more critical time given the the threats, the stakes, the rhetoric. President Trump has a rally uh, this weekend in Waco, Texas. Um, You know, it is a fraught, perilous moment for the country and, of course, for uh, Alvin Bragg and his office. It is. Thank you, Alex. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Well, tomorrow morning.